please be seated. A bright red four-wheel drive pickup devours a road full of huge rocks, bouncing up a steep hill and careens around several precarious turns, splashes through a creek and flies over an embankment, disappearing in a cloud of dust. A second vehicle, a sports car, appears in the distance on a windy country road. The music gets louder as the car comes closer, hugging tightly to the road around each curve, and it swooshes by in effortless, powerful grace and quickly disappears over the next hill. Then comes the product title and words filling the screen. We are driven. That was a Nissan commercial. How many of you saw it? Okay. few of you saw it. Okay. We are driven. The term driven conjures up images of assertiveness, self-confidence, accomplishment, and success. And we ask the question, are we driven? And what drives us? What makes us driven as people? Freud said the driving force in people is pleasure. Could you pull me down just a bit? And I don't know if I'm coming in the, maybe I'm in the monitors. You can pull me out of monitor. Freud said the driving force in people is pleasure. Someone else said the driving force in us is power. Fromm postulated that people are driven by love. Frankel, the philosopher, said meaning is the driving force. For others, the driving force is ego or self-actualization or self-realization, self-satisfaction. So what is it that drives you? What drives you and are you driven? Are you driven? Today we're going to look at a man who was driven. He was actually at the outer edge extreme of drivenness, so driven that he was actually controlled by forces outside of himself. Most of us will likely never deal with or ever observe this kind of drivenness, but today I want to see what we can learn from this passage in Luke. I'd like you to, as we look at driven or delivered, I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 8, Luke, the eighth chapter, it's on page 840 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Luke 840, or page 840. Luke 8, and we're going to start with verse 26. Luke 8, 26. An interesting story. We passed over this earlier in Luke, but wanted to look at it today. Luke 8, starting with verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, And he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. 
When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Weird, you say. Strange story. Outside the norm. It's kind of a strange story. We see a man who is driven. He's driven. Now, he was driven by an evil spirit. We sometimes call this demon possession. And this is not as simple as black and white as we would like to think. Evil spirits or fallen angels or demons, as we call them, are real. They exist. The Bible talks about them in many places. Now, we have nothing to fear. If you are a believer, you have nothing to fear from demons if you have Jesus in your life and submitted to him. But we can, by allowing sin to dominate certain areas of our lives, open ourselves up to demonic influence. That's one thing we need to be very careful of. There are degrees of demonic influence, the most severe, which is demon possession, where the demon actually takes total control over a human being. A better term that I like to use is demonized, which means influenced. And it can be demonized by degrees or total possession. And it's real. I personally dealt with demonized persons. Now, we don't know the history of that, this man and how he became totally possessed, but somehow he became totally demonized or totally possessed by demons. And now he was driven, and his behavior was really, really bizarre. Well, the followers of Jesus had just survived a huge storm. They'd just come across the Sea of Galilee, and they land at nightfall, closing in, and they're met on the shore by this naked, crazy, driven man, and they're near a graveyard, and you don't want to be by graveyards at night anyway, but that's where they were. Now, while everyone who is demonized is probably driven, not everyone who is driven is demonized. And I want to talk about some ways, just some lessons that we can learn from this particular story to talk about how we are driven, how we are driven, not necessarily demonized or controlled by demons, but how we are driven and what drives us. What can we learn from this unusual story? Number one, when one is driven, A, we're removed from home and family. Verse 27 said, this man was not living in a house, but living in the tombs. Now, we may not be demonized, but we can be driven by many, many things. Whether it's business or a successful career, recreation, diversion, or a relationship. Anything that becomes totally important to us, so important, so all-consuming, that it takes us away from home and family, that can be something that actually drives us. Is there anything that drives you? that takes you away from your family. Driven people are usually abnormally busy. Usually they're too busy for the pursuit of ordinary human relationships or marriage or family or friendships. And, and whether God or not God is even in the picture, they may be too busy for God. Driven people operate on the misconception that busyness is a sign of success 
and personal importance. A lot of times they complain about their responsibilities. It's the businessman who talks about all that he has to travel, his busy schedule, many appointments, appointments his long hours of work, the fact that he's not had a day off forever and hasn't taken vacation time. And he makes sure everyone knows about it because we need to elevate our importance. Like a homemaker I overheard once, she was taking three kids to soccer, swimming, gymnastics, and music lessons, and now complained that now one of them wanted to take ballet lessons. Drivenness. Any one of us can be pulled into drivenness. And drivenness can actually remove us from home and family. Now, this, when we're talking about this, it's not the extreme of the man in our story, but it's real. Another result of drivenness, when one is driven, they're stripped of dignity. This man was naked. He was stripped not only of his clothes, but he was stripped of his personality, his character, his dignity, his worth. He was stripped of everything. Now, in our drivenness, may not be that obvious or that extreme, but we can very easily compromise our values or our character, even our dignity, in order to reach goals. Sometimes we will compromise truth to live a lie. We've talked a lot about truth the last few weeks. Truth and just believing that everything's going well as long as we keep busy. Driven people have little time for honesty. Some people are so preoccupied with success they have no time to stop and see if their inner person is keeping pace with their outer person. And they're, they're, you get gaps in that internal integrity. And many compromise truth in order to reach a goal. Truth is a big deal. And we've been talking about how our world has compromised in, in, uh, on truth. Recent years we've, has brought, have brought us politicians and professors and even writers who have been caught in deceit, compromising the truth, inventing an Iraq war record to get elected, or plagiarizing whole sections of books or articles, or embroidering details on a resume to get a job. Even such a small thing as letting air out of a football to cheat in order to win a playoff game. Tom Brady was considering appealing his suspension to the Supreme Court. Seriously? He, did, he didn't. He's going to take it. But letting air out of a football to reach a goal. Compromise driven, so driven that there's a compromise on truth and integrity. Why? A commentary from Breakpoint says this. In the late 20th century, this problem, this problem with truth, was exacerbated by the rise of postmodern deconstructionism on college campuses. Many of you that have been to college in the last 20 years, which, or even in high school, junior high, there's this, this deconstructionism. Postmodernists teach that truth is not merely irrelevant. They just believe truth doesn't exist. And if you've been under classroom tutelage from anybody, especially in a state university, you know that that's the case. Postmodernists teach that truth is not merely irrelevant. They just believe truth does not exist. Lynn Cheney writes in the book Telling the Truth that academics leaped beyond the common sense observation that people's descriptions of reality differ. In other words, we all see something happen. We're going to describe it a little bit differently. Now, that, that's a valid difference of, of what happened in truth. But they make the leap beyond that common sense description to the conclusion that there is no independent reality, thus no basis for making judgments about truth or falsity. Truth claims are in reality, they will say, constructs of 
dominant groups and creations of the powerful. How many times have you heard that? Truth, really, just a creation of whatever you want it to be. Drivenness. And that's what, that's what drivenness can do. Drivenness, stripped of dignity, character, integrity, and truth, which is what we base our life on. When one is driven, one also lives among the dead. Verse 27, it said he lives in the tomb. Now, I'm talking here about living where there's no true life. Not physical life, but spiritual life. Dead spiritually. Are you alive spiritually? Do you have an alive relationship with the living God? God intended for us to have this relationship with him through Jesus. And the question is, are you alive in that relationship? Or are relationships with other people on a purely physical realm or superficial friendships, those kinds of relationships, are they more important than your relationship with the living God? See, that's, that's really life versus death. Are we living in life or are we living in death? What brings fulfillment? These are foundational questions about how we approach life today. What brings fulfillment and what do we count as important? McCloskey writes this, definitions of what it means to be self-fulfilled vary. Francis Schaeffer suggested that two of the operating principles of self-fulfillment, the secularists are the pursuit of personal peace, and affluence, okay? This is how we find fulfillment. Personal peace is defined as just to be left alone. Okay, I want peace, just, I just wanna be left alone. Don't, I don't wanna be troubled by the trouble of other people, whether they're across the world or across the city. It's to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. That's how some people define peace, is just leave me alone, okay? I'll, I'll deal with my stuff, you deal with your stuff, don't bother me. Affluence, the other basis of personal fulfillment, affluence is defined as an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity. Life made up of things, things, and more things. Success judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. For the overwhelming majority of Americans, an, an important part of living a good life simply means more. I just want more. It's only one is just more. But stuff doesn't bring life. Stuff is dead. It's inanimate. And so whether our desire for personal peace or affluence or whatever that is, it's, it's being driven for something that is dead. It's, it doesn't bring life. These are gods that are no different than carved statues of wood or stone. And we bow down, oh, thou great BMW, thou great BMW, bring me meaning and fulfillment in my life. Or, oh, dream house, give me all that I've ever wanted. You know, we, we laugh about that, but when these kinds of things take, take over our lives and we're driven by those things or the pursuit of those things, we live in death because it's dead. Living for dead things. It's preoccupation with the world's value system, the accumulation of dead, inanimate things. And so if we're driven for that, it's like we live among the dead. Ralph Barton was a successful satiric writer who committed suicide in 1931. And he left this note behind. Quote, I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I have gone from wife to wife, house to house, and visited great countries of the world. But I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours a day. Wow. Driven, living among the dead, preoccupied with 
symbols of accomplishment, things that are lifeless and dead, living among the dead. When we're driven, we can live among the dead. When we're driven, we also resist God, letter D. In verse 28, the man said, leave me alone. He said, what do you want to do with me? He didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Do you ever resist God? Every day. <laughs> we, we know what God wants and we're doing that. And we wake up and it's a contest of wills. Is it going to be my will or God's will? There's this constant battle inside each one of us. It's called the old man, the old nature that, that mitigates against it and fights against God. And resisting God, it's part of who we are. And that battle will be there until the day we go home to be with Jesus. Are my ambitions and goals more important than Jesus? How, how passionate are we about our faith? Or are we just kind of nominal Christians? Nominal Christians. Nominal, I used to hear that as a kid. They say, well, this is a nominal Christian. There's a real belief. It's just like, what, what does that mean? In, in Tell It Off and Tell It Well, Mark McCloskey describes nominal. He says, the term nominal is derived from the Latin term nominales, meaning belonging to a name. Thus, a Christian nominalist is one who claims the name Christian but has no authentic, personal, sin-forgiving, or life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. His allegiance to Jesus is in name, not in heart. In other words, it doesn't make any difference. These are described as professors, not possessors of Jesus Christ. And while claiming the title of Christian, they have all failed to comprehend the reality of a personal commitment to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. One guy described it, he said he has all the right words, but none of the music in his heart. All the right words, all the right words. A nominalist has been spiritually inoculated, so exposed to what he believes is true Christianity, that he reasons that there is nothing more beyond his present experience. Glad that Christianity asks nothing more than church attendance or intellectual agreement with certain doctrines, and there's never any sense of need. Anything more would be fanaticism. And this, this whole thing of nominalism is especially a danger for those who've walked with Jesus for a lifetime. Have you made the slide back into nominalism, resisting God, or is your faith moving forward? Is it dynamic? Is it alive? Is it moving forward? Driven. When we're driven, we resist God. And it's a battle every single day. When one is driven, letter E, one breaks the chains that confine. This is breaking the rules, violating the boundaries. Now, as parents, we set boundaries for our children for their good health and well-being. That was to keep them from harming themselves. And that can be everything from don't touch the hot stove to don't, don't play in the traffic to, you know, you, you name it. There are a lot of rules that we just said this is for your safety and well-being and good. And God, in the same way, has also set up boundaries for us. And most of them are summed up in, in the Ten Commandments. And, and, and in the future, we're going to look at those specifically. Basically, the Ten Commandments govern our, our, first of all, our relationship with God, how to relate to Him and not violate His character, and then how to relate to human beings is the second part of the Ten Commandments. Those are boundaries. And, and He set those up not to spoil our fun. He set those up in order for us to function properly and healthy in good relationship with him and with other people. But the driven person pushes those boundaries and breaks the rules to their own destruction. 
And they keep pushing that and pushing that. Now, one area that this is pushed, because we're such a, uh, such a society that's just overly sexualized, Chuck Colson wrote an article before his death, Sex and Sensibility, Protecting the Moral Ecology. He wrote this, 36 years ago, police arrested store owner Sam Ginsburg for selling pornography to a 16-year-old boy. Ginsburg claimed that anti-pornography laws violated his First Amendment rights, and the Supreme Court disagreed. At that point, they disagreed. In, in effect, Justice Brennan said that the parents were entitled to the law's help in protecting the well-being of their children. The state had its own interest in safeguarding children from abuses that might prevent their growth into well-developed citizens. The opposition said, yes, porn shocks and offends, but putting up with being shocked and offended is a price we must pay for the great blessing of freedom of expression. Well, it's not true. Robert George reminds that pornography's harm is not its capacity to shock and offend, but rather its tendency to corrupt and deprave. Pornography is a source of moral corruption, breaking the chains and pushing the boundaries. Now, secularism will say anything consenting adults agree to is morally acceptable, but Christianity teaches that God intended intimate relationships to serve both a unitive and pro-creative function within the bonds of marriage. Pornography corrupts because it undermines our capacity to understand that intimate relationship is anything other than self-gratification. It teaches us to regard our bodies and the bodies of others as mere objects of pleasure or as sex objects. Ultimately, pornography leads to a sexuality that is impulsive, selfish, out of control. It enslaves people to their basest desires. It breaks the chains. Pornographic fantasies lead to real-world horrors, the abuse, exploitation of women and children. And we must warn our children that consuming pornography makes it harder for them to become good husbands, wives, and parents. It has destroyed many a marriage relationship. One of the travesties is a recent study showed that over 80% of men in church are involved regularly in pornography. 80% plus. Just as disturbing in many ways, over 50% of pastors are engaged in pornography. Talk about breaking chains, pushing the boundaries. Talk about destructive behavior that absolutely devastates people. Breaking those chains will destroy the marriage and the family. Drivenness breaks chains. Drivenness. Are we driven to break chains? The driven person, letter F, lives in fear. Lives in fear. Some people are driven because they're afraid to stop or slow down. They, they may have time to, to think and, 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 and examine their life if they stop being driven. And finally, when one is driven, one is alone. This man was driven to solitary places. And in this desperate situation, this is the good news, Jesus steps in to help this man. Now, no matter what your drivenness, no matter what you're driven by, here's the hope that Jesus has the power to deliver you from drivenness. How is one delivered? Is Roman numeral two. 
How is one delivered? First of all, letter A, recognize who Jesus is. This man recognized Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. The first step is to realize that this is God of the universe. We are called to recognize that Jesus was and is God. He's the Lord over all things, and he has the power to deliver us from anything and everything. Say, I don't have the power. Good. That's, that's the first step, is that I do not have the ability to stop my drivenness. But the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, has the power to do exactly that. Secondly, identify the source of drivenness. Jesus identifies the source. He says, what is your name? He called it out, and he named it, and it was called Legion, which is a multitude of de demons. And sometimes the, the beginning step is to identify the source. And maybe something I've said this morning will help identify your source of drivenness. Why are you driven? Identify it. And thirdly, confess the drivenness. In, in verse 30, this man confesses it. And when we discover our source of drivenness, it's crucial to admit, to verbally confess it to God for the sin that it is. And let me just say something. In James it says, not only to confess our sins to Jesus, but confess our sins to one another so that we can be forgiven. And some of us need a confessor, someone that we can trust, the confidant that we can say, I'm wrestling with this, I confess this sin, I need help, whatever that is. And of course, I'd say this to, to men or women who are dealing with pornography. Find somebody that you can confide in and talk to and hold you accountable. There are programs that, can, that, that you have your, your accountability partner. They, will, they can see everything you saw. Okay? So make sure they know your passwords and all of that so they know there's accountability. When we discover our source of drivenness, it's crucial to admit and verbally confess and brings us to the last part. Letter D, allow Jesus to be the leader of your life. Submit totally to God. Make Jesus Lord. This drivenness may or may not be in the, in the physical realm, but it's in the spiritual realm, realm of the spirit. Every day when we get up, we're going to have a battle of wills. Is it my way or God's way? My will or God's will? And if we want deliverance from, from drivenness, this is a call to give it to God completely. So what happens when someone is delivered? Let's see what happened to this man. See what happened when he's delivered. When one is delivered, first of all, we find the man sitting at the feet of Jesus. This denotes submission to the leadership of Jesus. It demonstrates relationship with Jesus, an eager listener. And the question is, no matter what we're delivered from in, 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 in drivenness, can we do whatever we're doing, whether it's an activity or it's something that we enjoy or as a family, can you do it and at the same time, speak to Jesus in prayer. Can you share this with Jesus, or do we have to hide it? The question is, can we share this? Is this something that, that we are living at the feet of Jesus in this constant relationship with him? He's sitting at the feet of, of Jesus in relationship. There's this constant desire to be with Jesus. Secondly, his dignity is restored. Verse 35 says he's clothed and dressed. And that represents a restoration of values and character, integrity and forgiveness and worth. And all of that comes to us when we're delivered. Let us see, it says he was in his right mind. Sane, whole, clear thinking. Swindoll says every prodigal is temporarily insane. So if we've ever wandered from God or done something, we're, we, you know, we probably were temporarily insane. This is a restoration of truth and perspective and right judgment. Able to see things as they are. 
know who we are, understand our purpose, and have that true commitment, open, unfettered relationship with God, our Father. And letter D, desires to follow Jesus. In verse 38, he begged for the opportunity to follow Jesus. Do you need a renewal in your desire to follow Jesus? Maybe you once had this real passion, but maybe it's cold and lethargic. We can be delivered and have that restored. Then he returns to home and family, letter E. Jesus always brings a restoration of relationships. Letter F, he testifies to the power of Jesus. He said, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Conversion to mission, uh, that delivered from and delivered for. He has a story. Every one of us has a different story to tell. Every one of us has a story. A couple weeks ago, we heard, heard uh, a youth choir on a Sunday night that was here, and they shared different stories of Jesus' work in their lives. It was awesome because it was their story. It was personal. You have a story. And when you're delivered, you will also have an addition to your story. A great story. He told, this guy told whoever would listen. Well, what was the response of the people? Roman numeral four. What was the response of the people? Fear. Fear. What? Why? What, what, why was that? They asked Jesus to leave. You know, sometimes when we see the supernatural hand of God, we're afraid. We see God do something and we go, whoa, that is freaky. I don't know if I want to do anything with that. We're afraid. It disturbs our equilibrium. It upsets our comfortable existence. We think we know how God works, and we like to be comfortable with that. These people had grown accustomed to this crazy driven man. They grew comfortable with his misery and his drivenness. It was predictable. And Jesus does something outside the box completely and just freaks everybody out. He upsets the predictability. So these people rejected Jesus. They sent him away. They said, go away. When God does the unusual, the powerful, how do we respond? How do we respond? Do we accept it? Or do we reject it? As you look at your life this morning, are you driven? Or are you delivered? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you can take a story that seems really outside the box to us, and you can make it make sense. And I just pray today, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives as we know that you want us to be delivered. Lord, we as humans are, are driven in many different ways. Not to the extreme that this man was, but we are driven away from you, away from home and family, away breaking chains. We are oh, so many ways that, that pull us every which direction. And I just pray, Lord, that you would, by your grace, allow us to turn back to you and be delivered and say, God, I can't do it, but you can do it. The power of Jesus Christ that does that. And I pray today, Lord, as we celebrate the reason we can have that deliverance, the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed, the, the body that was broken, that you would inject into this time a brand new meaning for each and every one of us as we celebrate this together. In Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers are on their way forward. We're going to celebrate communion. They'll distribute the elements in a moment. And you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion.